I fundamentally believe in, let's call it universal oneness, or the fact that there is no singular experience, but it's rather that the collective individual experience is the Jewish experience today. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is David Yaris. David is all about human connection and millennial empowerment. He's the founder of JSwipe, the number one Jewish dating app with a community of over 1 million users worldwide. He's also the founder of Millennial, an agency that helps global brands and Jewish nonprofits understand and engage the millennial consumer. Previously, David ran the youth marketing for brands like Coca-Cola, Microsoft, and Spotify. David and I chat about how people can approach their cultural and religious communities in ways that feel modern and accessible, dating during COVID-19, and David's personal journey with love and community. So with that, let's jump right into it. David, thank you so much for joining me today on Create Community. I'm super excited for our conversation. Of course. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. So I like to start off these episodes by learning a little bit more about how my guest actually became a community builder and really found the sense of belonging growing up. And something that I find really fascinating in your early journey is that you grew up as part of this tight Jewish community in Miami Beach, Florida, and then you did a total 180 and decided on your own to leave that community and to go to a non-Jewish boarding school in DC. So I think that's a really good place to start. Can you tell me what spurred that decision? And was there a bit of culture shock when you actually got there? Totally. What spurred that decision is I think curiosity, you know, fascination for the unknown and different. I essentially, I went to DC to visit my cousins for, I think my cousin's bar mitzvah. I went to the school that he went to and I I just fell in love with the culture and the experience and like the conversations that these people were having were at just such a different level than the type of conversations I was used to day to day at, you know, Jewish day school that I went to in Miami that I was like, I have to see what this is about. I think I also, you know, fell in love with this girl up in DC and I was like, DC is amazing. I have to, I have to go. But I think really it was, I love my childhood and growing up in Miami, but I think it just got, you know, I knew the friends and I had the friends. I was very comfortable in my school. I was very comfortable in my community. And it was like, I've always been a proponent of pushing myself into uncomfortable situations that would challenge me that I could sort of build that muscle. And then the next time I would face them be able to maneuver more nimbly through them. So my journey is pretty much the opposite of yours. I'm I'm also Jewish, but I did not grow up in a Jewish community at all. I grew up in Ukraine where it was actually really anti-Semitic at the time where I was growing up. So I didn't really even know that I was Jewish or it just wasn't really part of the conversation or the traditions that I grew up with. Then when we moved to Canada, that's really when I started exploring it. And I did sort of the opposite of what you did. I sort of went to go seek out that Jewish community and to really learn more about that with, you know, going on birthright and then actually going to live in Tel Aviv for a year. Something else that I find interesting in your experience is that you're an only child. I'm also an only child. So I think that that makes it interesting as a community builder. I think in a way it forces you to find your own community because you're not born into one automatically. You know, you don't have siblings. I also didn't really have a large family in general. Do you think that being an only child was that part of the reason why you were able to make that kind of decision to like flip your life upside down and go have this independent experience? 
I definitely think that it was a large contributor in my comfort with just sort of being with myself, with navigating new situations, you know, on my own, and probably my you know, comfort in general independence, for sure. Growing up, I would always make friends or, or make things happen or have to sort of create the fun I was looking to experience. And I think that sort of independence and self-autonomy, self-reliance definitely plays a role in both the decision to leave and sort of charter new paths back then and also much of my life day to day today. Absolutely. What did you end up studying in post-secondary? Well, I went to a small business school called Babson in Boston. And Babson is a school specific for entrepreneurship. So everyone studies entrepreneurship. And then you can add additional what they call concentrations. So I, I also studied um, marketing. Although funny enough, that was like pre-digital marketing era. So everything I do now like didn't really exist 10 years ago in school, which is so crazy to think about. I know it's insane. Like when I was in university, I think like third or fourth year, I took the social media class. And at the time it was like, I don't think even like Pinterest was out and all the stuff was so new. Like Instagram was like brand new. And it's so crazy that, you know, like we were just learning that stuff back then and how much has changed over the last 10 years or so. You really have to be nimble and to learn along the way. So did you end up starting your career sort of like in the in the marketing industry or did you jump straight into entrepreneurship? Well, I mean, I think it really depends on what you consider starting my career. But the first official business endeavor I did was I was 14 in Miami Beach, Florida, and I rented out a club with the girl that I was carpooling with, my best friend at the time, Deanna Paul. And we threw like a Passover party for all the other high school kids in, in our community and everyone from coming in from New York on South Beach way back in the day. That one spiraled a little bit out of control chaos. But then the next one, you know, it's something I continued and it kept on getting bigger and more exciting. And it's something I continued when I went to DC. It's something that I continued when I went to Boston for college. So I was throwing parties throughout school in and around the Boston area, then the New England area, then sort of up and down the West Coast. And those parties started getting sponsored by brands randomly. And I started sort of getting hip to the brand interest in engaging with young people it was more interesting or more exciting or more lucrative than trying to get $10 from a you know, fellow college student to try to pay for a ticket to a party or whatever. So that sort of shifted or pivoted to a, let's call it guerrilla or did, you know, offline or event or experiential marketing firm called Buzz University that I was running for a couple of years in school. And then also a couple of years just out of school based in Boston. That was essentially an agency that was helping brands reach college students through events and offline marketing activations like experiential marketing or advocacy, word of mouth marketing, ambassadors, guerrilla marketing on campuses. And that was a fun and wild chapter of life. So I guess I'd say I'd started in entrepreneurship. And then through a unknown series of events, I was actually, you call that birthright, I was in Israel after my summer, I graduated from college, took a couple months off before resuming the business that I was working on. And I went on birthright with some of my best friends. And it was just the most incredible trip of my life. We extended the trip and we went to Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, Cyprus, and Greece. We were like backpacking and sleeping on like rooftops of hostels. It was so wild. But anyways, while I was there, when I got back, I was going to go to the conference that was, you know, at that time it was called Word of Mouth Marketing or WOMA. So the WOMA Word of Mouth Marketing Association Annual Summit event, because I figured that's where I'd meet other brand marketers or, or some clients. And I went, and that's actually where I found the company that I ended up moving to New York to work for called Mr. Youth. So I got back from the conference. I tweeted at their founder. He's like, let me know when you're going to be in New York next. And I looked at it. I was like, oh, I'll be there tomorrow. And not true. We went down to New York, 
had a fascinating interaction where I just basically told them all my secrets and all my strategies and all of everything that I had been working on. And they looked at me, they're like, you need to come and work for us. And I was like, ah, but I was really excited. And then ended up, you know, a few months or actually, no, a few weeks later, moving to New York and um, starting the next chapter of life. Well, that's one way to get a job. That's so cool. And then I know throughout that journey, you eventually started focusing specifically on Jewish brands. What spurred that decision and how did you transition into that? It wasn't like a specific decision. I think it was more actually sort of totally randomly happened to, you know, wind up in that space. And I think what started that is, so the company that I moved to New York for was called Mr. Youth. And they were a really cool, really, you know, successful youth marketing agency that helped very big brands like Coca-Cola, Spotify, Microsoft, and such connect and engage with college students. And one of the partners at that firm, maybe a year or two into that, I was there for about five years, she messages me and she's like, David, I have this friend. It's this sweet woman. She's, you know, retired, but she used to be one, she was one of the first women ad execs in the industry. She's doing this project about Israel. And I know that, you know, I know that's something you care about. Would you mind talking to her about social media? She's asking me for help, but I don't really, you know, that's not my thing. I know that's your thing. Would you mind, you know, giving her a call? And I said, sure, why not? And so I called this lady and we had, you know, tea, which turned into a, you know, a meeting the next week where I was teaching her, you know, volunteer staff of three social media strategy and best practices. And then the next week they just blew up and they got like, hundreds of fans and then thousands of fans and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of fans on Facebook. This is, I think it might've been pre-Instagram days, but we're basically, that was crazy for someone to like just happen to sort of stumble into. And it was so powerful and transformative for them that she calls me the next week. She's like, wait, you need to talk to our friends at the Israeli consulate. And I was like, "Mm, okay, why not? So I talked to them. And at that time I was young. I didn't really have any formal agenda other than like kind of like a sure, why not? Or like a yes, you know, mentality. It was fun. I love doing this anyways. And then after one, you know, meeting with the consulate at the time, they were like, wait a second, will you go to eight of our cities around the States? And if we fly you there to teach networks of organizations and advocates, you know, for Israel in those cities? And I was like, "Hmm, sure, why not? And then, you know, one thing led to the next, led to the next. And lo and behold, before knowing it, I had no free time because during the week I was working for Mr. Youth still at the time, you know, doing the Coke and Spotify and, you know, Microsoft stuff. And then on the weekends, I was popping around to different Jewish organizations in different cities, like just sharing with them and teaching them. And it was really, really fun. And then eventually it just became time to to go out and do my own thing again. And really, actually, that was five years ago. So I started something called Millennial, but it wasn't until about a year, year and a half ago, where even though half or more than half of our clients were Jewish organizations, it wasn't something that I allowed myself to really sit into and think like, okay, well, I guess this is a specialty specifically, if you will, because I wanted to remain broadly, at least open and focused. But I think alignment and passion and purpose is so, so important. I want to jump in to your journey with J-Swipe. So what inspired you to start J-Swipe? It's a funny story. I mean, as the story goes, well, first of all, when people say, how did you think of the idea? I think the truth of the matter is any Jewish person on Tinder thought of the idea. 
we just executed. We did it quick. We did it well with lots of hustle, luck, miracle, blessing, and like late nights. But the truth is I moved to New York City in 2010 for that dream job and to meet a nice Jewish girl. I moved to the Upper West Side because I was told that that's where they all lived. And I did all the things that one does to potentially meet someone. I went to all of the events and, you know, the Shabbat scene. And and it was just shockingly a little awkward. I can't explain it. And first of all, it's only respect and love to the Upper West Side. And, and I actually did have really, you know, wonderful few years there. But specifically as it relates to like the dating experience, or at least, no, I'll speak from the I, my experience there in like dating or, or, you know, being single there and looking for someone, it was just so, so strange and much more so than really any other area of life and anywhere else that I'd like be meeting people where everyone would go to shul or go to synagogue on Saturdays. They'd get there, you know, right before the social hour, if you will. And people are primarily there to find someone, but everyone just clusters in their sort of groups of friends. If you make it across the room to like say hello to a new person, at least the way that it felt for me was like the lights dim, the suspense music goes on, it can become slow motion, everyone's looking at you and you're like, is this person really going to talk to that new person? So at around that time, Tinder came out, completely disrupted the way that people connect in our generation. And I was on it. I was, you know, fascinated by it. And in the truth of the matter is people, if you care about finding and being with someone specifically who's Jewish, then it isn't as efficient or effective of a tool to do so. And so there was still a space and I figured someone was bound to do it. If not me, who? If not now, when? Like, yalla, let's go. Yeah, it's so needed. And then you guys launched that on Passover, which I think was such a good strategy. Why did you do that? The thought process behind that was launching when everyone was home, their family with their friends, probably having people say, your aunt or your grandma, like, so who are you dating these days, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually someone would find out about J-Swipe and maybe encourage you to get on it. And then the thought process was then you would go back home to where you lived after being home for the holidays and like sort of spread the word. And a combination of right place, right time, right team, right execution. But, you know, it happened and we Passover sort of sort of popped for us. And then quickly within one month, we had something like 30,000 users. And then within you know two months, we had 50, a few months, we had 100. And it just started growing and going. And it was really, really an unexpected um, blessing. That's incredible. And then so in the before times, you know, before COVID, how did you guys foster a sense of community off the app? I know that there were some events and things that you did. What were some of those tactics? We had events in different cities. We were active in things like the Celebrate Israel, you know, Yom Hatzmut sort of parade in New York City with you know tens of thousands of people. We did some guerrilla marketing and partnerships. But I think mostly fostering community was through events. You know, as soon as we would get a critical mass in a city, we would launch an event there. They were always free events. The goal was to enable, you know, our community to get together offline. You always see each other on the app, but like ultimately the magic happens offline and in person. So, you know, helping to normalize and destigmatize the early days five years ago or so of like app dating. So it was both a community sort of connecting engine and also 
a tool for really adding like a local relevance and authenticity to the experience. Those events sound like the total opposite of what you were kind of experiencing when you first moved to New York and so, so needed. So I'm so glad that you were able to create that and, you know, get people more comfortable with that. Are there any success stories that really stand out to you? I know, you know, when we first met at a big event here in Toronto, I remember kind of like waiting in line to just ask you a random question and you were just swarmed with all these happy couples and married couples who met on your platform. My favorite stories in general are, first of all, let's say, of course, every story is beautiful, right? Like if someone finds their love and, you know, whoever, however that happened, like wild and beautiful. And so for sure. And my favorite, favorite stories are the ones that like just never, ever, ever would have happened, you know, 10, 15 years ago without technology, you know, bringing people together. So, for example, the couple that they're both happened to be swiping that day on global and they happened to, you know, have matched with each other and they started, you know, talking. And then, you know, one thing led to another. He's in Tel Aviv. She's in South Africa. And like they visit, they Skype, they fall in love, they get married, like that type of thing. It's like, no way. That's so wild. So those are my favorite stories, the ones that are just like so, so totally out there and wild that like somehow the universe you know, connected these dots. Yeah, that's so rewarding to know that, you know, you facilitated that. So I did have a relationship with somebody that I met on JSwipe. The relationship itself was not a success story, but I think that relationship was actually something that was pivotal in my life and that I think it connected me more with my own Jewish identity and it helped me see it in a different light. So the person that I dated, he moved to Toronto recently from Israel and all the friends that he had were, you know, Israelis as well. A lot of them were entrepreneurs and it really showed me Israelis and, you know, the whole culture in a different light. I think before, you know, since I didn't really grow up with it and I was just kind of discovering this all myself on my own journey, I had this view of it that was almost like a little bit stuffy. I thought that a lot of Israelis were really religious, which is like totally the opposite of what it's like in Tel Aviv and where it's really modern. So I think that was something that really opened my eyes and that relationship didn't work out. But a few months later, it's actually when I decided to leave everything behind in Canada and go move to Tel Aviv and, you know, to spend a year working there and traveling around Israel and really getting to know the country in a new way and to find my own sense of belonging there. Wow. I love that. Well, thank you, universe. You know what I mean? It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. So I want to shift gears here a little bit and chat about modern dating. You know, I know that you did this really cool study called the Love Study in 2019, looking at how millennials are dating. What are some of the trends that you found there? And do you think some of those trends are kind of sticking around in current times because of COVID or, you know, just what are some things that really stand out to you? So the intention of the study was really to shed light on the wide range of views and experiences and ideas and ideology that collectively represent what I see as the modern or the millennial Jewish experience. And what I mean by that is it's very rare in the community to have a space or container that has a meaningful amount of people from all different walks and backgrounds of Jewish life. On JSwipe, I think it was designed intentionally this way, but also there's a lot of 
luck blessing miracle and like pretty wild that we really do have a meaningful you know and engaged community from orthodox and more traditional to like just jewish and cultural and everything in between and we have like thriving so let's call them micro communities there and so i fundamentally believe in let's call it universal oneness or the fact that there is no singular experience but it's rather that the collective individual experience is the jewish experience today and so i wanted to give a voice to that and so it wasn't a particular finding one or the other or that I think stands out, but really just the rare opportunity to really hold beautiful, completely open space for all of the varying voices from all of the varying viewpoints, at least those that were represented on JSY, to be shared. And that to me was the most exciting part about it. I think we spent months and months and months deep in that just to make sure to keep the integrity of its sort of openness and purity as broad and wide. What have you seen during the last few months? You know, we're recording this in the middle of COVID. What has dating looked like the last few months and what has activity been like on JSwipe? Has it gone down? Has it gone up? It's interesting because I thought originally that it would go down. But the truth is throughout the last few months, there has been any consistent major either uptick or like downtick. It was, it's just been kind of sort of consistently normal, quote unquote. Now, for sure, how people are meeting in the dating experience in general has changed a lot since, I guess, social distancing. And back in the day, for years, I've been encouraging people based on what my life coach has you know, always shared with me and other people that she coaches, which is a video first date, like a FaceTime first date, or like not even a first date, but almost like a screener, like a vibe check. Like before you go on a date, maybe you should like just you know, have a quick video, FaceTime. And whenever I'd encourage that for people, I'd always get a little bit of pushback, like, oh, really? Like, sure, that's okay. I don't know. Like, are they going to think it's weird if I ask? And now, based on the last few months of Zoom dates, I think that we've seen a rapid mass adoption of, at the very least, openness to digital dating. I really love that. And it's something that I thought was kind of strange before and wasn't super open to it kind of, you know, it felt like it was going to be something like an interview almost if somebody wanted to have a phone call or a video chat first. But now it, it feels like it's something that's really natural. And I think you're right in that people are being more respectful. In general, people are having deeper conversations. I don't think as much ghosting is happening. And people do seem to be looking for relationships more. Do you think that's going to continue also after, you know, once things open back up and we can go out again? Broadly speaking, the last few months have sort of caused everyone to go in and do some inner questioning, whether it's about work or life or one's ability to be with oneself. And part of that, for sure, is the question of while we've been distant from friends, family, you know, anyone else in our lives for the last little while, when being more intentional with human connection and what does it mean to us and what do we want? Who do we want? What type of relationships and experiences do we want to fill this space with, you know, once we start having more offline time with each other? Yeah, me too. Very excited to just watch and see how things evolve. So I wanted to get some of your advice for community creators. I think the way that people are identifying religiously and spiritually and the practice of tradition is really changing. How can people bring their culture and religion to life in new ways that feel modern and accessible? Uh, the first question I'd really ask is what is culture and religion? Or like, what does culture and religion mean to someone? Right? Because I feel like for some, you know, what we're seeing with millennials in general is people are by and large, identifying much more spiritual and sort of universal than traditionally 
religious. And in that meditation or spirituality or other practices of mindfulness and other things might be, you know, depending on how we define religion, someone's way of connecting to the universe or energy or whatever, you know, existence, that might be their modern way of doing that. And so what took me a while to get to, and I've been on a Jewish journey with myself and just what I think about it and what it means to me and or is it my responsibility to sort of continue this for me or is it my responsibility to continue this for my parents or my family or for the world or I don't know, all these questions but really what took me to this most recent chapter of life to really more naturally I guess understand or embody is the permission to create it and experience it as feels most true and authentic to me and what I mean by that is, like, I feel like lots of our generation, I'm most familiar with the experience of the, the, the millennial Jews. I would be fascinated about the experience and how that's been evolving for other religions. But what I'll speak to is what I know. And for much of our generation who I think, by and large, are just much less, you know, practicing or, or really even interested in the Jewish experience or in their Jewish, you know, identity, it's because our lives are growing up. We were presented with things that for whatever reason maybe just didn't jive with us or flavors that we didn't you know love and i think that it took me up until this year to realize that like if the flavors that were presented to me are strawberry vanilla chocolate and i don't like any of those then it doesn't mean that i have to not have ice cream but i have permission to create like a polka dotted sprinkle fudge sundae with like i don't know some cherries on top and like by the way that's my jewish experience and so understanding that and feeling into that and then realizing like oh wait a second like i could create an experience in this as well that is also for me jewish and grounded in in the ideas and the traditions and the through an expression that feels really really true to me and so i think the first piece is permission and then from there i don't know i love 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 hosting shabbats grew up in a home where we would host shabbats and have friends over every weekend and so it's been a part of my life for a long time but over the last few years it's become just like look most forward to in the week is to pull together like a, a really special group of people with both you know, some of my best friends and some new friends and some people i don't know or usually a potluck-ish style shabbat dinner that is like a core component of my let's call it modern exploration or experience of my Jewish identity. I really love that. And especially Shabbat, you know, it's like it's the holiday of chill. And basically, you're just you're asked to unplug and really spend time with the people that matter most to you, whether it's your family or good friends or who, whoever really your community is. And I love how you found ways to, you know, bring your own vibe to it and make it something that's really modern and something that's really cool and something that you want to participate in. And I love that ice cream analogy. I think that's so perfect. So I know that you've traveled a lot. What experiences truly stand out to you and shape your understanding of the world and how you fit into it? I think there's a couple things. One, I went on a trip called Reality Israel, which is part of a Schusterman Foundation initiative that brings various artists, activists, entrepreneurs, and all different types of people together on a trip to Israel that changed my life, like powerfully, powerfully changed my life. It introduced me to what is now like my like core tribe of family and best friends and the community and best friends that resulted from that have shown me new ways of thinking about relationships, about business, about what I think about as alignment 
in what one does and who one is and purpose and all the things. So from that trip and from the best friends that I made on that trip, I then went to Burning Man for the first time, which was definitely an eye-opener. It is certainly as wild as one thinks might be, but in all different ways. And for me, the first time that I was there, I had a playa, which is the name of the, I guess, the area or the space, a midnight dance party, like conversation moment where someone introduced me to this idea of fear and scarcity versus possibility and abundance. And the concept that everything we do, every thought we have, every action we take, everything gets processed instantly. As soon as it hits our mind, gets processed through the lens of fear and scarcity or possibility and abundance. And growing up, we're conditioned to live through a lens of fear and scarcity. Like, am I good enough? Will this be okay? Are they out to get me? Do I look okay? Will they like me? Like, is this going to work? How are they going to screw me? Versus the idea of, well, this is all going to be good. I'm good. We're good. Like, humans are good. The world has my back. Like, this will work. Let's go. Like, yalla. Like, come on. And it's simply a muscle. It's like a little, if you can imagine like a pinball game, you know, when you hit the thing on the side and it, like that little like flap that goes like, it hits the pinball. Like I almost see it as like one of those, like this little side to side switch where you're flipping thoughts and ideas that come into your mind, either right or left, right being possibility and abundance, left being fear and scarcity. And if we can build that muscle to flip and process and live through the lens of possibility and abundance, then the world shows up differently and powerfully so. And so I think that experience at Burning Man, as well as introducing me to what I now see of, uh, think of as, you know, vibey Judaism at the Shabbat dinner that happens at Burning Man every year. Those were both two very profound recent life events that have shaped, you know, who I am and, and how I think. That's such a profound way of looking at it. I think when you do realize that, you know, the possibilities are endless and you start looking at your life as something where it's, you know, abundant and it's not a competition and there could be happiness for you and for the next person. I think you really start presenting yourself differently and just how you carry yourself through the world and the types of opportunities that you pursue. So what communities are you part of and why are they meaningful to you? Well, first, human, part of the human community, whatever we define that as broadly. It's important to say that first, because I believe like fundamentally in the universal one is like we're all human. It's all, you know, everything else is made up by humans. And so it's like, okay, let's figure this out together. We're in this together, you know, period. Then from there, I'd say hashtag Jewish community. And I say hashtag because it's like I don't identify as the particular thing within that. And then day-to-day communities, I'd say I'm part of my community of colleagues, so people who I work with every day, and you know, it's a tight little community, but it's really special. My close friends that I met most of on that trip or as a result of through the people I met on the trip and the reality community, so the trip from that organization that you know takes people to Israel and, and then the communities that it creates in various cities that it pulls from. So in a lot of past interviews, you mentioned that your dream is hashtag van life. Can you please elaborate on that? Very curious what that is. It's about living a fulfilled, meaningful life where I feel like I'm having deep connections with people who I care about and enjoying and doing good in the world. So that's the general plan. And part of that, loosely, I would love to be some van life. And for me, what van life is, is, well, first of all, if you're not familiar, I definitely encourage perusing the hashtag van life on Insta. But basically, it's like freedom, flexibility, 
I love to have a like a fun, vibey little van with all the things that I need and you know, Wi-Fi so I could still be connected and do some work and you know still be creating and have nowhere specifically to be, nowhere specifically to go and just flow and be and go wherever my heart takes me, you know, wherever feels right in that moment until something else feels right in the next moment and then, and then explore that. It's a combination of freedom, of being outdoors, of nature and inspiration. How do you choose your people, you know, really like that group of friends and just people that you surround yourself day to day? I feel like this is probably saying for it, but like energy, what is it? The law of attraction, like the energy you put out is like what you get back. But I think there's a couple of things. One is this idea of everything. How do I choose people? How do I do? And how do I make decisions? Really everything, all of life for me is guided through like energy and just like a feeling. Does it feel good? Does it feel like right? Or does it feel off? And then I think everything else, you know, trickles down from that. So how do I choose people? A, I think people who are like vibe aligned will generally tend to connect or, you know, cluster together. So through meeting people, through people who I love, and then you generally meet people also who are wonderful people through intentional community, you know, gathering. Yeah. So my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does community mean to you? It means family. It means connectedness. It means in this world of, I know, is it 7 billion people? The pockets of connection, interconnection, interactivity, and the space between ideas, ideologies, and ways of being that sort of just gravitate together. Usually for me, it feels really nice. That's such a great definition. Awesome. David, thank you so much again for joining me. This was such a fun conversation. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks for thinking of having me on. And yeah, this was fun. I had such a great time chatting with David, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this conversation. You can connect with David across all social platforms at David Yaris, spelled Y-A-R-U-S. And you can learn more about JSwipe at jswipeapp.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.